welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny, and I am now high above the Chaoyang district of Beijing because I'm in the home of author and longtime China resident James Zimmerman. We're going to be talking about James's new book, The Peking Express. With me is always is my co-host, David Moser. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm not doing too bad, Dave. That's good. <laughs> Actually, I'm very optimistic these days. Uh, just got news not too long ago that the they're restoring the or, re, or um, reactivating the tourist visas from the 10-year tourist visas, which means my wife and daughter can both come here at some point. And my wife already has plans for, uh, I think, May. She said she might come for a week or two. And then, so things are looking up. The ice has thawed. We are, COVID is over and we're on, you know, to the next phase here. It's a very nice feeling. Same thing with my daughter. My 24-year-old daughter that was about to um, file an application for a new visa. And then she was struggling with the, the whole process. And then they changed the rule. And her 10-year visa is good until yeah. 2026. So, yeah. And she's, she'll be here at the end of April and the beginning of May. So maybe you should introduce the voice that we just heard uh, so that the audience knows who we're talking to here. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is, of course, <laughs> this is the person whose home we are currently invading, James Zimmerman. He's a Beijing-based lawyer, lived and worked in China for over 25 years. He's a former four-term chairman of the American wow. Chamber of Commerce in China. And he's frequently featured as a political commentator on U.S.-China relations. You may have seen his face or heard his voice in interviews on that subject. And today we are here talking about his book coming out this week, The Peking Express, The Bandits Who Stole a Train, Stunned the West, and Broke the Republic of China. <laughs> it's quite a title. So, James, why don't we kick this off? Tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for this book, why this particular incident, and then maybe tell us, without giving too much away, because the book is a real page-turner, without giving too much away, tell us a little bit about this event and why it's so interesting for you. I was, I was in the middle of a, another writing project, um, specifically addressing early 20th century China and the, the U.S., actually the U.S. court system that was in, in China at the time. And a lot of the characters that were in that, in that story also started coming up and in, also being involved in the Peking Express. And so in looking at that, I was started to think, you know, started to dig in deeper and discovered that there was not a whole lot written about it except for during the time frame of 1923 when it occurred, you know, until about 1930, 1938, and pretty much it dropped off the radar screen, the, you know, with the invasion of the Japanese into, into China, as well as World War II and all the other historical events that took place. So, and even in, um, when I started doing research and talking to the locals in, in uh, southern Shandong, you know, conversations with the locals would be focused on Japan's invasion. And there, it wasn't um, what happened in 1923 was just not part of their collective memories. Which, um, yeah, so I, the more I thought about it, I said, this is a great story. And was researching and digging deep into each of the individual characters, which took me all around the world because, you know, the hostages, the foreign hostages came from five different countries. And what I discovered in that, you know, research project, um, that families, the descendants of both the hostages as well as the rescuers and some of the, you know, and some of the bandits per se were keeping records long generation after generation. And what was interesting that it was part of their family, not just family history, but their, 
you know, you know how what defined them, you know, within their families. And one family, um, which was uh, the, the the Pinger family. Yeah, Pinger was a was a U.S. Army major stationed in the Philippines, and like a lot of other expats, he um, decided to take his family on a tour of China because he was based in the Philippines, which where the U.S. Army had. You know, military bases there after the um, after the Spanish American War. So anyway, the the Pinger family, Colonel Pinger, had kept a, a diary uh, of the incident that was over 120 pages long. It was so extremely detailed on everything that happened to him during the 37 day crisis, and none of this was published. None of this was out there. On top of that, I also learned that the one of the granddaughters of Colonel Pinger, uh, Major Pinger, became a colonel, and she had been to China before, and she actually toured the southern Shandong, the Zhaozhuang region, to trace the steps of her grandfather. So it was, the point is, this was part of the family that carried on from generations to generation, but that was the case not just with you know, this one family, but also the rescuers, you know, and the fixers. Um, one of the interesting um, things that I found in the family records for the um, Anderson family, because the American fixer on that's name was um, Roy Anderson, the original agreement, you know, guarantee between the bandits and Roy Anderson is in a, in a farmhouse in western Massachusetts. You know, I mean, that's that was pretty incredible in finding that. So the more I dug into this, the more I realized that this is a story. It's a people story that is waiting, you know, waiting to be told. And so I, I spent a, a lot of time digging into archives, you know, in the UK, the US, Mexico, Italy, um, and both university as well as government and family records and try and put it all together. And the original manuscript was actually about 600 pages, you know, and it was more of a history lesson. It was more, it was too detailed. And then when it was accepted for publication, publisher said to me that everybody loves a train story. And, and that was the goal is to fix this, uh, um, to edit the, the manuscript to a, um, to a level that it is really a train story, a people story. And that's what I did and got it down. The the story itself is is amazing, and again, I encourage everyone to to read the book. As I said, it was one of those stories where, you know, if you're if you're unfamiliar with the incident and you don't know what happens next, you really do want to find out. Go to the next page, figure out what's going to happen. But give us an overview. Tell us a little bit about for those people who are unfamiliar with the with the Linchang incident. Can you give us an overview of what happened and what was the context for this? What became a a worldwide news story? I mean, this is 1923. He's about um, about 12 years, 11 years after the fall of the Qing dynasty. And what we were seeing at that time was um, a revolving door of warlords, one after another coming in and um, a lot of regional fighting between the different warlords. And unfortunately, this was a time when there was extreme poverty as well. Um, and he had a nominal central government that was trying to hold the country together. Um, and so with the warlords coming in and out, you had a situation where there was a lot of disbanded troops. And these disbanded troops were but starving. 
and they were looking to be reinstated into somebody's army, anybody's army that they could. In the meantime, the, the central government was trying to move on a path of modernization. And so they had the, they had the, the railroad, which in a little bit of history and the, the railroads, China took a long time to warm up to the benefits of the railroads. The first railroad in China was in 1876, and that was a very short nine-mile line between Shanghai and Wusong that after operating for a year, it was dug up and, you know, it was tossed in the ocean. You know, so it wasn't until later that both the Qing as well as the Republican, you know, government took an interest in railroads and started making the investments. In fact, when you look at it from a comparative point of view, you know, the United States had at the turn of the century, 193,000 miles of track that was crisscrossing the U.S. Europe was the same. In China, they had like 10 miles, 12 miles of track. And so they really needed to up their game in a big way. Now, by 1923, there was uh, more and more you know, train lines that are, were set up to try to unify the country. And so the railroads were important for a lot of reasons, not, not just for economic, commercial reasons. They, they needed to get the coal and the other resources to the overseas markets. And the northern mines were, you know, using the rail lines to go down the Yangtze River and ship it offshore. At the same time, they, the government saw it as a way of unifying the country politically, which was very fragmented during the warlord era. And then also there was, um, I mean, tourism. It was a way of really, you know, boosting tourism revenues and so forth. And that's how it was advertised. And the year before this all took place, the government actually invested in sets of um, trains that were, you know, all steel. At the time, steel carriages were a technological marvel. You know, because even in the U.S. where you had wooden cars that were susceptible to telescoping as well as fires. And so the in China, they had incredible advanced technology with these new cars that were actually manufactured in the U.S. The, the express service began on April, um, excuse me, on January 1 of 1923. So just several months before this service was launched. And then you also had a lot of advertisements about what to see in China. You had the leading handbook for travel in China saying, you got to go, you got to be there, it's safe. If there's, if there's bandits, if there's pirates, it just adds zest to the whole travel. This is the context that we were in. But what was happening in, in southern um, Shandong was that the bandit chief, the a guy by the name of Sun Miao, he had been disbanded. He was with the local provincial uh, militia. He was disbanded, sent back home with his 700 men, had no place to go. Um, unfortunately, they were being suppressed by the local Shandong warlord who was chasing after him. And actually, ended, he ended up, um, or the local warlord executed Sun Miao's brother chopped off his head, hung up his head at the Linchung Railway Station as a message that, you know, this was his territory and it was not Sun Miao. So Sun Miao basically saw that as a declaration of war. 
You know, so Sumiao got together with his men of 700 and another 300 from a more a hardened um, professional bandit by the name of Popo Lu, you know, and the intent, the political, um, you know, basis for what they had planned to do was basically to retake, you know, the region, the southern Shandong region, you know, retake their homeland away from the uh, provincial warlord and have, have an, an area where Sun Miao would become the brigadier general and that he would be recognized by the Peking government. So in the meantime, you have, a, you know, the express train was sending people up north and sending people south. Um, and this particular day, you had a collection of all sorts of very, very interesting characters you know, that were aboard the train and on their way northward when Sumiao had made a decision to derail the train. And what he did was he uh, and his um, fellow army of bandits, they removed what is called the fish plates, which are the steel plates that hold the rails together. And they removed this, the fish plates from 16 rails. Now, when the, the conductor's going northward, you know, he doesn't see that the, the fish plates are removed. The track is still sitting on the sleepers. But unfortunately, when you get across that sabotage location, it can't hold the weight of a very heavy locomotive, you know. And so at 2.35 in the morning, so Miao had set this up to basically derail the train and then go the, through the process of robbing the train and taking hostages. For me, the, the, the interest in the book, just uh, the fact that you had this train, which you make an analogy to the Titanic, because it was state-of-the-art, the, the, the passengers were lived and had you know, absolutely luxurious conditions with gourmet food and, and, and uh, electricity, heated rooms and everything. And here's this, here's this train, state-of-the-art train, with all these aristocrats, family of millionaires, or maybe equivalent of billionaires today, you know, going through China on this exotic tour to see China, you know, as a tourist, this newly opened tourism, suddenly, because of these bandits who come, and you describe it so well, there's, you know, there's sort of horrific violence and chaos and confusion, suddenly these, these elite pampered Westerners are thrust in the middle of one of the most dangerous and poverty-stricken areas of, of China, and in the hands of bandits who... who uh, can't they, well, they can't communicate with. But when I finished reading the book, the thing I came away from was that this is a story of how in these extreme conditions, even these people who had no way of communicating uh, virtually nothing in common, at the end, after the ordeal, uh, when finally the, the denouement, that, the, that they were actually, the hostages were, were rescued, that there was this human moment of bonding and commonality, that all the, the, they found a way to work together for common values. And they even came to, it wasn't the Stockholm effect, but they did come to fe have feelings for their cap for captors, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because Chairman Mao, you also mentioned that, if you talk about this, Chairman Mao was asked about this, and he, he, he considered this to be a sort of an act of failed class warfare because they didn't have the political acumen and the, the experience to... to to do this, right? But it, it really was a class warfare. I mean, these are poor people at, at, who are at the edge of you know survival, and saw these 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 rich people and what they had as their way that they could you know continue to to survive. 
I mean, there was um, clearly bonding going on between some of the bandits and the, the foreign hostages, as well as some of the Chinese hostages. The, and that part of that is because within the bandit army, there was, I mean, sure, there were people that would be considered criminals or very violent people. Um, but there was also some that were very, very sophisticated, that were easy to empathize with. They, they were starving that they were um, without jobs. You know, they were fairly sophisticated. Like there was, um, you know, two, two of the bandit sub-chiefs, very interesting people that were quite likable. And one was nicknamed the Frenchman, who had served in the China Labor Corps during the Great War, the First World War. Um, here's a guy that was basically, um, you know, at a young age, he went to go work in Europe you know, with the other 175,000, you know, um, you know, neighbors of his from Shandong. And actually Shandong was a was a, a recruiting ground for the China Labor Corps. But then so the um, the Frenchman, he went to work on the front lines, you know, and he was had access to sophisticated, you know, Western machinery, weapons and so forth. Um, he also learned continental languages. He learned French, became very, very fluent in French. But when he, after the war was over, they pretty much were sent home and they did not have the financial resources to do much of anything. But here's a guy that was worldly, sophisticated, and he, um, you know, he's one of the heroes in the book because he does save you know, save some of the hostages from being basically executed, you know, um, and he identified with um, many of the, um, you know, many of the foreign hostages. So he was a good guy. And so there was a lot of bonding that went into that. There was another one, um, one of the hostages by the name of Rusky, who was a guy that went off to fight in the Russian Revolution. He too learned to speak Russian, and, you know, he had a, um, you know, he, um, an interest in Russian songs and Russian food and so forth. And some of the foreign hostages actually spoke Russian. And so they were able to communicate with them, and they, just, they really liked him. He was just a really all-around nice guy. I mean, he was the type of bandit subchief that would leave his weapon around, you know, and the foreign hostages didn't feel threatened by him. You know, most of the foreign hostages felt more threatened by the younger child bandits, which, you know, to them, to the, the foreigners, they did not have the ethics or the experience to control their violent emotions. There was bandits that, that, that they identified with. In fact, in the book, I mentioned that several of the, um, several of the bandits went to work for the foreign hostages after. You know, Rusky himself went to work with Lee Solomon, who Lee Solomon was a businessman from Shanghai who actually spoke Russian. But Lee was the leading exporter, manufacturer and exporter of Maojong sets. So in 1920, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, Maojong was, a, was a, going through a fad in the U.S. where people were playing Maojong more than they do today. You know, well, and so at least you had uh, Brooklyn Jewish housewives that that were it was a craze that they were for some strange reason all playing mahjong. Well, there was actually an interesting thing which is mentioned in a footnote in the book is the um, the guy that ran the Sacconi office, Joseph um, Babcock, who ran the Sacconi office, and he plays a minor role with 
the uh, Rockefeller's sister-in-law, Lucy Aldridge. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Babcock uh, and his wife wrote the definitive book on how to play Mao Chong. But um, but anyway, that was a big deal. So anyway, Lee Solomon hired Rusky to go work for him, and they spent, you know, a decade working together. So you had those, you know, bandits that got close with, with some of the hostages, and it was... You know, probably more than just a Stockholm effect, but it's more of that they really respected one another because they were living together, you know, and up in the in the temple compound in the Baotuku mountain area called Sanqing Temple, Temple of the Clouds, as they nicknamed it. You know, they they lived together for four weeks, and, you know, it kind of shared the same food. In fact, some of the bandits would look to the hostages for food because the hostages were receiving food from the Red Cross, the, uh, the American Rescue Mission, which was supported by the American Chamber of Commerce. But anyway, so you had this, you know, this bonding going on, as you mentioned, and it's something that was very, I think it was um, what really, I mean, the bonding was one of the reasons why, in the end, there was um, a lot of concerns about how it ended and without giving away the way things, um, you know, the climate, climatic ending of the book, it's, you know, there was some concerns and some of the foreigners spoke up about the treatments of, you know, some of the characters towards the end. Mm -hmm. Throughout the book, I touch upon things where there was experiences, the hostages, specifically the foreign hostages would experience when they were visiting certain villages, the starvation, the poverty, you know, the foot binding. Um, addiction to Mm -hmm. opium Opium. and so forth. But they also felt that the people were, in general, quite, you know, quite warm and welcoming, Mm -hmm. shared their food with them. The passage about uh, Lucy Aldridge was unbelievable. I mean, she was on the verge of death. This, I think, somewhat obese uh, uh, Caucasian white woman in a thrust into a very, very uh, rural... I mean, this was like the original, like, CNN breaking news: White woman missing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it become like a it's become like a, a really terrible news cliche. But that was completely what was happening at this yeah. moment. And you you get you tell the story sort of from her viewpoint too, yeah. which is a, I don't know how you do that. In fact, I'm amazed at how you were take take all these accounts because you know your book has more characters than Hong Lo Meng, you know, Dream of the Red Chamber, and yet you managed to knit them into this coherent uh, narrative, which is uh, amazing. But tell mm. briefly about her experience. Okay. Sure. I mean, you have, to, you have to put yourself in the shoes of a passenger that is about ready to board the train in Shanghai on May 5th at 9 a.m. in the morning, and you scan the crowd, and you see all these interesting characters. I mean, you see, you see people from the Jewish merchants community. You see honeymooners. You see families. You see tourists. And then you also see three women in their early 50s, you know, wearing what looks like Easter bonnets. You know, they're not really ready for an overnight train ride, but they stick out. And that happens to be Lucy Aldrich's sister-in-law, you know, of John D. Rockefeller Jr. Um, I mean, Lucy was wealthy in her own right. She, her, her father was um, the late senator from Rhode Island. Her brother, was a member of Congress, a very, very well-known, very sophisticated lady, you know, and she had with her her, um, her uh, two com- a companion as well as a secretary that you know, supported them, her on the trip. But Lucy, this was Lucy's second circumnavigation of the globe. 
and she was going through China to collect textiles and antiques, um, which, by the way, are in the Rhode Island um, Textile Museum. You know, it's um, so anyway, at this time, she was traveling the world um, and happened to be just happened to be on the train with all those other interesting characters. So what happened, um, like all of those in the, at 2.35 in the morning, she was taken hostage and dragged across the countryside. Walking barefoot in the rain and the mud, right? Everyone, I mean, pretty much everyone on that train was in their pajamas. And those that were dressed were actually had a few minutes when they heard the shooting and they, the bandits boarding the train, you know, that they had a few minutes to dress. But she was basically in her, you know, pajamas, yeah. you know. And so, but she was dragged across the countryside along with her companions and the other passengers. But Lucy was, um, in some respects, maybe this was her New England upbringing, but she basically was pushing back on the bandits, you know, and looking at them as like, oh, how dare you touch me and, you know, saying, leave me alone. And so for her, she was scared. She was clearly scared. But in some respects, she was, she thought it was an all, it was a joke. You know, it was funny. You know, that all changed when she started witnessing violence against some of the Chinese passengers. Um, and then through her experience, um, she was, um, it was, a, you know, it was a kind of an eye opener when she eventually was, um, you know, ended up in a village area. She was treated, you know, she was treated like um, very well by the villagers. They helped her. They combed her hair. They tried to clean her up, got her water, got her food. She found it remarkable that the women in the village, all with bound feet, were able to be very helpful and supportive to her. But it almost kind of turned her whole thinking about China and the Chinese when she experienced the love and compassion that they had for her. Um, and she, you know, would say things like, well, I just, I want to come back, you know, and not to bring them money, but maybe just to bring them something nice and so forth. She also had wonderful things to say about Sun Miao. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, her comments after meeting him, she saw him as somebody that was truly a hero. And she made a comment, she made a comment where she said, come to the United States, there'll be good things for you, you'll do very well there. And of course, he doesn't understand her, or he kind of blew it off. But she, you know, in her own New England upbringing was, um, you know, thought very highly, you know, not just of the women, you know, in the village, but of, of Sun Miao. But she also was afraid of some of the other bandits who were, you know. And well, she should be. <laughs> yeah. Apart from what the what this story and the book tells us about China at the time, you know, from a just as a reader, and, and you know, China, this kind of thing doesn't happen in China very often anymore, obviously. But this sort of thing happens a lot in other parts of the world. Right. You know, China as a failed state in the 1920s. Well, there are other examples in the present day. And I have to say, as I was reading this, I, I was absorbed not just in the China narrative, but also, as often happens when reading tales like this, of a, what would I do? Because the reactions by the different people who are involved, both the foreign and the Chinese passengers, especially in that chaotic few minutes right after the train derails, and the decisions that people made had an extraordinary 
effect on how they then spent or even if they did spend another few days alive or on the run or with as hostages. The idea, for example, you mentioned that people were in pajamas, but there were also people on the train who had a little bit more, as I say, they had cooler heads and they knew the first thing they needed to do was get dressed because this was not going to end well. <laughs> or when the, you know, when the bandits burst through the door, do you fight back and what might that cost? And of course, there were those people too who were there not with themselves, but with their families. And how did that condition their response? And I was just wondering, you know, maybe walk us through some of the decisions that were made. As, as David pointed out, there's quite a few characters in the book. But were there, were there any characters in particular who made some instant choices that then had a dramatic effect on what happened to them next? Yeah, there was a number of, um, of the passengers that um, were intent on fighting back. You know, one such character actually was carrying quite a lot of money. And it was, you know, you had coins and you had bills. And so he had pretty much his whole life savings on him. And so, and he was also armed to the teeth, you know. And he knew China and he was actually, this gentleman was more of a criminal element himself. And he was not going to give up his, his wealth to um, a group of bandits. So he made the choice of fighting back, you know, and that was a fatal decision. But um, there's others, you know, those with families basically, you know, figured that this might end very quickly. And so let's not fight back. Let's give up our valuables and not, you know, and not um, put ourselves in jeopardy. And that was something that they did a pretty much the entire way in terms of the 37-day the crisis. They figured they were just not going to fight unless they had to. Um, but there was, I mean, it was um, a situation in China that was just completely chaotic. And unfortunately, it was also a reflection of some of the treaty ports, you know, like Shanghai and Tianjin and other areas where, you know, people lived. Um, in a very cloistered lifestyle, you know, some ventured out into the countryside, but they may not have fully understood what was on the ground, you know, out in the rural areas. But the advertisements themselves for the express trains and the fact that they invested heavily in these new train cars and they had, and all of them had train police and so forth, you know, people felt that it was safe. You know, because for the first four months, at least in, you know, um, you know, in China, the express trains were operating without any problem whatsoever. So you can imagine all of these people that were boarding the train, you know, and reading, you know, like Carl Crow's Handbook for China and, and other advertisements, they saw this is, is safe. You know, they may see things that might appear to be exotic, but they felt that they were safe in making a decision to travel. I mean, think about it. The there were two US Army majors with their families, you know, children that were with them and they made a decision, you know, I mean, they they've spent time in the Philippines and other parts of Asia, but they made a decision that wow, we're going to we're going to see China. We're going to go um, and see a country that is, you know, is in the same you know, condition as when Marco Polo saw it, mm -hmm. you know, so that's what the advertisements were, right. advertisements were saying. So, but in some respects, and a lot of people, you know, would say that China was a failed state, 
you know, after 12 years of warlord rule, there was also a big debate going on about whether or not China could govern itself. In fact, this incident, you know, um, you know, led to a number of issues that challenged the the the, the um, central government and did and did result in a coup that, you know, ended the presidency of President Li. It did also end China's efforts to to um, you know, um, limit what is called extraterritoriality. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. just before, you know, the Lincheng incident, which is uh, what the Peking Express has been called, you know, there was talks about abandoning extraterritoriality and the court systems that were there for the benefit of foreigners. Um, and, and the whole system of extraterritoriality was viewed by the Chinese, and that was all of them. You know, whatever side, you know, whatever faction you were involved with, you all viewed extraterritoriality as, as, a, as an insult or a threat to sovereignty. The discussions, they had a commission on, on extraterritoriality that was set to meet in November of 1923, and that was canceled because the foreign governments said, you're not ready. You're not governing your, governing your country. It's too risky. We're going to keep our own system here. And so extraterritoriality existed in China until, 19, in the, until the 1940s, until World War II. You know, so this incident really impacted China's view of itself and how it wanted to, you know, rid the country of the extraterritoriality, you know, issues that were impacting, you know, the people and the government. Your book is really one of the most vivid portrayals that uh, that I've read. You, you, Jeremiah, you've read much more than I have. It, it gives you a better picture of the chaos and violence and and, and backwardness of, of that era and that those areas that were controlled by the warlords and the bandits. I mean, very very vivid and, and uh, uh, you know amazing. It seems to me this incident. Uh, I know that you were planning on doing a documentary on this or mini documentary or something like that. And you have on your Twitter feed, you have photos of you actually visiting some of these spots. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, this would be a great kind of opportunity for, you know, a a new tourism opportunity. And after having read the book, it would be interesting for me. I would love to go see the the sites that you're talking about, right? But there must be some reason why it seems like the reason this is historically kind of neglected or forgotten is that it's in no one's interest to to promote this story or to put it out there. It doesn't have good lessons or or, or self-serving lessons for for any of the the political sides, including Chairman Mao, which is why he kind of downplayed it. Part of the the you're mentioning the landscape and the pictures that 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 Jim has on James has on his uh, Twitter feed, which I think maybe we could link to. Yeah. Uh, because the landscape is very much a character in this book. Yeah, it is. And it, it occurs to me that, you know, being in China, that having read this, and of course the story is, you know, terrible and it was incredibly traumatic for the people involved. But it also really made me want to go to southern Shandong <laughs> and like yeah, walk and, and do what yeah. James did, which is actually walk some of these routes yeah, along which many of Where these the hostages, hostages stumbled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from the point that you go to the train station today, you know, it's called the Zhaozhuang West train station is where the old Lincheng train station exists. I mean, it was built by the Germans in 1909. Um, it's cut stone. It'll be there forever. And the Chinese themselves, the, the community in Zhaozhuang is preserving that. And there's also landmarks every step of the way 
where that are continue to exist, like two of the temples where the hostages were um, held. You know, the first is what in the book is called the Dragon Door Temple. It's actually called the Ganchuan, you know, Sweet Springs um, Temple that has been around for 1,200 years. And, and that was that still is a vibrant Buddhist community. Then when you get out to Paltsuku Mountain, you know, when you take those country roads and you and the mountain comes in view, just like in 1923 when the bandits and the hostages walked and they saw the mountain and that the bandits themselves were yelling, Pazuku, Pazuku. It was just incredible. And I've been there now, you know, eight times. And seeing that mountain is just incredible. You know, the landscape, the geology is just incredible. And it is in the same condition it is basically since 1923, including on the foothills, the temple Temple of the Clouds, which is um, actually called Sanqing Temple, it's still in the same condition where the hostages spent four weeks living their lives. And Palzuku was, of course, the main stronghold fort or base for at least one of these bandit groups, but also had been used as a fortress stronghold hideout for many groups, rebels, bandits, and others going back into long before this in southern Shandong. Yes, that was actually where the Nian Rebellion was based and in the Shandong and other you know, parts of northern China. But, you know, where they the Nian Rebellions held out, you know, and this is between 1851 to 1868. Um, there are various structures, including at the top of Pazuku Mountain, where, you know, they they were based. And so there's a long, long history, uh, a banditry of a rebellion um, in this area. I mean, and it's also um, very close to Taishan, mm. you know, same, you know, actually geological structure, landscape, um, as in Taishan. Um, but it's an incredible mountain, absolutely incredible to be there and to be in the forest. I mean, it's a very quiet location in the history. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's um um, very, very impressive. So, and my one of my goals in the idea of a, a um, documentary, a kind of a mini documentary, it is more of uh, more of a you know virtual tour, uh -huh. is to interest people uh -huh. in the the area that exists today. One of the granddaughters for you know the, the Pinger family. She has gone there now. Has been there twice, and so the families that had you know, you know, that years later, generations later, they see this as important part of their family history, their family story. So just being there, you would feel part of the whole Peking Express story. And you know, so I'm encouraging. I don't want to say I'm promoting, you know, Zhaoguang regional tourism, but that's what is going to happen mm -hmm. eventually. Unfortunately, the infrastructure in the area for tourism has a long way to go. <laughs> but for those that are living in Beijing or in Shanghai, it's, it's an incredible weekend trip, um, something that I think people will never forget if they do go to the top of Haozuku Mountain and see those temples. What's the connection between the Peking Express and, of course, the famous 1932 movie Shanghai Express? Yeah, back in the 20s, there was a gentleman by the name of Harry Hervey who was a, um, a cruise ship director um, who had spent years traveling around Asia. 
1923, he was pretty much reading the same media reports that everybody else was reading. You know, for the 37-day crisis, um, newspapers around the world, the wire services were running daily, you know, uh, stories and reports about everything that was happening. And so Harry Hervey got this and said, ah, this sounds like a really great thing to write about. So he wrote the script for the Shanghai Express, which is remotely based upon, you know, the peak of uh, the Lin Chung incident. Um, but there's a lot of things that are much different. There were not banders. There were revolutionaries. They, there was no, you know, 34-mile march across the countryside. They pretty much stayed on the train. Um, and so there's a lot of differences. You don't, didn't see any children on the train. It was pretty much the adults. And also the lead, uh, Marlena Dietrich, her famous line that it took more than one man to change my name to Shanghai Lily was never attributed to anyone on the Peking Express. <laughs> <laughs> I should hope not. That's there's some classic scenes there with Anna Mae Wong and Marlena Dietrich, and great backstory about all of that. And Spring is probably one of their her best movies, actually. Although she doesn't have a really major role, but but the two of them in in the car there, smoking in their sultry outfits, and the proper prim lady who invites them to to visit her boarding house. <laughs> in Boston, and they're looking at her with such contempt. And, oh, that's such a wonderful scene. It is. I mean, and on top of that, I mean, this movie actually was nominated for Best Picture and mm -hmm. uh, Best Actor, and it did receive an Academy Award for the cinematography. Oh, really? Which, yeah, yeah the I cinematography was amazing. Beautiful black and white cinematography. Yeah. Some of Marlene Dietrich's, you know, sort of iconic images come from that film because the lighting is, is so incredible in that film, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting us into your home and also for telling us so much about the uh, about the book. The name of the book is The Peking Express, The Bandits Who Stole a Train, Stunned the West and Broke the Republic of China. It is going to be available this week. Is there is an electronic edition too? Yeah, it'll be both an audio, electronic, as well as a hardbound. And the audio version actually has a voice, uh, not mine, but it was has a, a very, very uh, excellent voice. It gets all of the Chinese words correct, and it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful great. voice. That's great. Yeah, that's always a key. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm listening to an audio book on Chinese history, uh, there's a few of them I've listened yeah. to where the pronunciation's <laughs> like, yeah, we're, we're, we're done on page three. <laughs> Well, thank you all for listening and tune in again for another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny along with David Moser wishing you happy travels and stay off the trains. Mm -hmm.